Hey guys, welcome to Codex West. Uh, this is episode nine, and uh, we got some surprises today. Uh, let's introduce everyone first. We got Mark, obviously. Yeah, Mark, what what's up, up Mark? Yo. And then uh, today, so you know, Jacob is just sleeping during the day because he's crazy. So we decided to get another Jacob in here. This is a. Uh, our good friend Jake Tripp. Say what's up, Jake. Hey, what's going on? You know, you had to had to get a replacement for the other Jacobs. So that's, this is JT. That's right. This is JT. Uh, we're getting rid of JL for JT. And um, he's uh, our finance guy, so we're probably going to try and shoehorn in a completely unrelated finance <laughs> topic just to well, get I his also want I also do want to point out how insane it is. Jake, uh, Jake, Johnny, and I have known each other for over a decade, but I haven't spoken to Jake. I swear to God, it's probably been like what four years since the last time I talked to Jake or something like that. Just because life beats you down and there's no escape from it, you know what I mean? Not anything in particular, but this is a really funny reunion right now because right now Jake and I, who haven't talked in four years, are about to talk about like you know some movies and stuff. Just you know, we're gonna somehow tie Star Wars into finance and <laughs> sexuality. It's gonna be lovely. Today. There's a lot of sexuality we're gonna talk about yeah, for sure. There's a lot uh, of sexuality involved, pretty much always. Yeah, uh, especially <laughs> in this movie. Um, no one wants to talk about the sex in the Last Jedi, and we're gonna really break that ground. We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna cleave that hole. Um, cleave that hole. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Just what I'm saying, man. I just <laughs> say things that... really profane. <laughs> it's it's horribly profane. But uh, yeah, so I got a lot to uh, talk about the Last Jedi. Um, here's what I don't want to do: is just like this YouTube like technical checklisting of like the pacing was off and and I didn't like Luke's character and I'm a fanboy. Oh my god! Like yeah, all that shit sucks. I'm uninterested. I'm uninterested in your dumbass subjective opinion. I want to talk about. I want to talk about the medicinematics of the Last Jedi. Uh, I want to talk about themes. <laughs> I got a lot. Listen, we got a lot to talk about here, and we, we need do. to break into it. But, um, so I've been writing something about this. I haven't finished it. I thought maybe it might be cool to like break. Like maybe I can test it out. Yeah, dude. The hook. Like you remember, you know, when and you then write we can get... essays in like fifth grade, and you need the the hook. You'd like use like a Thomas Jefferson quote or something. <laughs> it's pretty. I'm pretty much using quotes in here. So yeah, yeah he definitely yeah. quotes the Constitution a few times. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty sexy. Oh it's super God. sexy. Yeah, Lincoln makes an appearance. <laughs> but I want to try it out, and then we can talk. Cause like the, all right. So just to preface this, um. I think movies are important. We can all agree on that. And as the year goes on in like the cultural present moment, there are cinematic moments, right? Like this December, I think, is characterized especially by The Last Jedi, but also The Disaster Artist. Yeah. Um, these are like the heaviest conversations I've been seeing. Like even The Post hasn't got as much traction <laughs> in my mind. Um, and so I kind of wanted to like talk about the intersection between these two movies to sort of like intimate this a sense of what's <laughs> happening right now <laughs> this is gonna we're be really fun. yeah we're, the intersectionality of the dis- disaster artist and the last jedi i uh, go for it dude i'm i'm all ears <laughs> okay so i'm gonna all right i'll start off i don't really get into the disaster artist in these three paragraphs but then i'm gonna like you know i'm gonna elaborate yeah what you'll you'll about. bob and weave or whatever it is yeah I'm going to bob and weave. I'm going to Harlem shake. So here we go. <laughs> How'd you die? Right. 
Shouts out. Shout out to Shout out to Aji Pai for uh for ruining the internet. How the net neutrality issue in The Last Jedi. (laughs) Okay, so here it goes. Around two months ago I read Susan Sontag's The Imagination of Disaster, a seminal treatise on the science fiction film. Her great line is science fiction films are not about science, they're about disaster. And what she means is that the occupation with these films is never about the science itself, but rather its applications, or moreover, its misapplications. No one watches The Fly to delve into the science of teleportation. We watch it to revel in the consequences of that scientificity malfunctioning. The science fiction film is thus a technological fiction film, where technology is always a doomsday device, the means to environmental catastrophe, epidemiological panic, human extinction, or in her word, disaster. Reading it, I had the idea to try and marry this essay with what, at the time, I perceived would be Ryan Johnson's creative contribution to the Star Wars saga. My thinking was that despite its science fiction pretenses, Star Wars was never really a run of science fiction films in Sontag's mold. Yeah, we have the Death Stars that reiterate ad nauseum throughout the series, but the annihilative powers of that technology are essentially subplot relegations, where the real story is a religious fable about interstellar samurais with identity issues. <laughs> However, Johnson. Yeah, yeah it's However, good. It's good. It's right. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Yeah. yeah. However, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> However, Johnson had made a fitting science fiction film in Looper. Not only was the social cost of time travel a real motivator of the drama, but his film also incorporated telekinetic characters, a power that is qualitatively force like. Along with the marketing materials, I sensed that the film's much touted subversion was going to involve a science fictional element that would recalibrate the series' generic aims. I never finished the piece I was writing. Ultimately, I've learned not to see my way through a prognostication, and I'm glad I didn't because predictably I was wrong. Sontag writes in science fiction films, disaster is rarely viewed intensively. It is always extensive. It's not that The Last Jedi isn't about disaster. It's fundamentally so. It's simply that its extensive disasters are merely inconveniences in comparison to the encompassing desperation of its intensive ones infidelity, guilt, perversion, shame. Johnson's film is about intra and interpersonal disasters, one he elaborates to social, sexual, and mythocinematic proportions. But then what's on display is something more special than disaster making. It's the larger imagination of self-destruction, one whose annihilation doesn't merely stop at the character's internal lives, but reaches outwards towards its cultural legacy and also inwards towards the medium itself. All right, that's all I have. Yeah, totally. That so, was all comprehensible, by the way. That wasn't like okay. That wasn't just made Perfect. up bullshit. <laughs> and I think a lot of what I'm going to say is going to like maybe sound like bullshit, but I promise I've like listened to so many like interviews, like the DGA interviews with Ryan Johnson and like some of the things he wrote for the like the um the, the Last Jedi art book that like speak directly to its intensive disaster making. I think, and I wanted to one I wanted to put it in comparison with. Um, the disaster artist, because um, we both we've all seen disaster artists. What what's happening in the disaster artist is there's this there's a similar thing going on in the Last Jedi where there's a relationship between celebrity and its own meta cinema, right? Mm-hmm. So in the disaster artist, we have this basically this alien Tommy Wiseau. How do you pronounce his last Wiseau. name? That, Wiseau. Yeah, whatever. Wiseau. I'm gonna call him Tommy. Yeah. So you have this guy who's like. Um, his desire for celebrity is like that legend making is um, something that makes him an alien because he doesn't care about acting. He, you know, he like 
uh, he, what's the word? He ma- like he. Uh, oh God, I can't think of it. Oh my God, fantasizes. He, does, he like, yeah. yeah, he like fantasizes about acting, but he doesn't really care about actors, and he doesn't. He hasn't seen movies. His relationship with celebrity is like this virus, and it destroys him, right? And it also just completely makes him someone that we can't relate to. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just an alien. But the thing with the disaster artist is that the actual making of the movie. Um, it's meta cinema. It never allows its logic to get like um, inoculated with the same virus that is plaguing Tommy and making him an alien, right? Like the movie is just so like it just sits in the moment. It's very realistic. There's a lot of handheld cameras. And it's just like basically a biopic. It never allows that. Um, it never allows his character to become part of the meta cinema, right? Yeah. Um, and the logic of the movie just stays. It's just like a very realistic movie about someone who is completely unrealistic. Well, um, I would, I mean, just, to me, just that's to say like a very brief comment is that like even though yeah, like the character doesn't get wrapped up into this kind of overarching um, meta comment, right? But at the same time, something that you and I that you and I both thought was that like the uh, like the best part of that movie is um, James Franco's performance, him playing a bad yeah. actor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when you're aware of, when you're very aware that you're watching some very famous actor act like a bad actor who is very famously and famous for being a bad actor, that in itself, I think, <laughs> right. brings that in. That's why I don't think it was like actually like, to call it a biopic is so odd because I don't think that I learned anything about the people. It was more like kind of a tableau of that, of like what happened. I learned that, that he was you know a I mean? major dick. Didn't you learn that he was, like, a major dick? Yeah, I mean, obviously. Like, like I mean, he's, like, screaming at that like, woman, like, you know. They're, they're like, oh, no, it's real, it's real Hollywood movie. She needs to look beautiful. Like, you know, like, makeup, makeup. Like, yeah, I mean, that was pretty fucked up. Um, but so I thought that there was, like, even though the character might not have been pulled into it, I think that the movie is very much wrought with that, like, metacinematic comment. And I think that the performance is the biggest uh, iteration or manifestation of that. Okay, so uh, I definitely agree, um, but it doesn't, like, okay, so this is very, like, when I was watching The Last Jedi, it just helped me understand what was going, what I didn't, what I think didn't make, what prevented uh, The Disaster Artist from being a great movie. I think it's a good movie, but what I realized <laughs> the, with, the, the missing $120 million of budget or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm probably a but No, but I mean, you didn't, you wouldn't even have to do that. It's just, I think what... Um, it, it when I watched the Last Jedi, there are moments in it that like it struck me back to like when I was like learning about film in college, and we're learning about Soviet montage theory, which was basically like it's something we all kind of like have understood now. But um, things can happen in the edit that have to exist in the mind of the viewer, right? Yeah. It's like discontinuity can be used to create effects that are expressly cinematic, that can only exist in cinema, right? So like. Um, um, Eisenstein, like famously, he would like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it would be a movie where there would be someone who's getting beat, like a worker, part of the, you know, proletariat getting beat, and then it would like switch to like a bunch of cattle being slaughtered, right? And obviously the metaphor here is that, you know, the worker is like the cattle. Um, but this was like a big thing at the time because a lot of people were just focusing on like the content, just trying to present um, a story with continuity. And here he was using discontinuity to make a metaphor. Mm-hmm. And that was something that can only really happen with movies in that particular way with time 
and uh, editing and cuts. Um, this is when you do that, you're like almost always reflecting on the nature of cinema itself, the nature of what you're doing. And The Last Jedi does this in a very particular way. I thought it was amazing that at first when I came out, I saw the movie with Jake and I was like, that didn't work for me viscerally. But I think a day later, cerebrally, I thought it was one of the most brilliant things. And that's the way that uh, Ray and Kylo talk to each other using the Force. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that is like almost their converse. They're never, except for the one time where it breaks, which is important. But they're always talking. Just the only way you can understand that they're talking to each other is if you allow yourself the imagination in between the edits. Right, yeah. because they're not in the same room, and in fact, the the cinematic nature of it is that they're probably not even like, if we were to imagine this real life, they're probably not looking at each other, right? Like mm-hmm. it's the framing of the shots themselves that, and the cut that makes you realize that they're actually talking to each other, um, but they're never in the same place. So that discontinuity is like expressly cinematic again, and because it's <laughs> this is gonna sound like cheesy, but I think this is. What the force is in this movie is like a like a very like salient topic. It's talked about a lot. Yeah, they have many conversations about what the force is and what the force can do is expanded. I think, um, and I'll talk about another scene that I think captures this meta cinema, which Ryan Johnson has talked about. But um, by making it the force that is connecting them, and then by also having that discontinuity have to be, or that discontinuity signaling that what we're watching is a movie, it's a way of starting to cinematize the force itself. Or like, it's like a expression of cinematic force or what the force is. Uh, Yeah, yeah, right? Okay, yeah, okay. Because these things have to exist in imagination um, and the force is like something that captures the imagination of people very, like, it's just like, it captures people so intensely it's like one it's like the biggest draw i think to the star wars saga i think it's a way of really making it like it's like movie making the force itself and it's allowing us to think about our own relationship with the device and the movie itself another scene i think that um does as well is remember when she talks to the mirror or when she like touches the mirror yeah um this is supposed to be like the jedi like the first the temple of the first jedis right um, and so, like, that scene itself, the mirror, which is, like, arguably, like, the first form of cinema, right? Like, in terms of being able to reflect and yeah. see a moving image. Um, she touches it, and then what I love about this movie is, like, there's this, you know, like, the light and the dark, right? It's supposed mm-hmm. to just be, like, this morality play, but there's a conscious attempt to complicate that morality. Um and one way you can do it is going to sound crazy too, but I can't understand why it would be a mirror and why there's all these like infinite regressions of her character, unless it was a comment on like movie making itself again, because the like the conditions for the visual image are always going to be like lighting and lightness and darkness and how you balance it. Mm-hmm. And in this one scene where it's like the essence of what the force should be, like she's going in there to learn about herself and her own problems um, and to self-reflect. Um, this is another way of us being able to self-reflect on what Star Wars means to us again. And like the fact that when she reaches out and she can't all she wants to see her parents, but she sees herself, mm-hmm. it's just like this like epic like nostalgia busting to me. Where like this whole movie I think he's just like breaking down 
our relationship with the nostalgia. Oh, I think yeah. this was I mean, set I, up too. I, that I that I very much agree with. That's going to be like my whole comment. Mm-hmm. Is, is it's like we have this in the Force Awakens, right? Like Kylo Ren is basically this wannabe Darth Vader who just can't pull it off, right? Mm-hmm. Like he cannot, like he can't live up to his memory. Um, and that just completely gets blown up in this movie too. Everyone's identity issues um, that are like representative of our identity issues with the movie uh, yeah, are getting yeah. totally decimated, cut down. And I, to me, um, that willingness and that risk was like sublime. Like that mirror scene, I did not, I was like in a surreal state of not knowing where the movie was taking place. I was so involved with my own relationship to the movie while watching this happen that it was like to see it in a blockbuster. That was like, like, you know, it was like gratuitous with its CGI effects, but whatever, like the actual experience itself mm-hmm. was like, I was enraptured. I thought it was amazing. Um, I can, I, I have some other things I want to say too about, um, uh, this being like, I think what hurts fanboy. There's a lot of fanboy hate right now. There's someone who's like made a bot to lower the Rotten Tomatoes score. Jesus. On, yeah, it's it's kind of nuts. And I think one of the things I'm gonna probably get in trouble for saying this is that this is like a super super progressive movie. Like, in uh, yeah, it really is. Are yeah. wildly, and this actually also leads back to the Soviet montage here because like, um, with. <laughs> yeah, there's the an overarching. At that time, like, they there's want- obviously like there's obviously politics to this movie. Like, and I think that's like, there's you know, obviously, yeah, yeah. And I mean, outside of just like the fact that it's, you know, the rebellion versus the first order or whatever they called now, but like, you know, yeah. outside of those very direct things, there's like other choices made in the movie making that very clearly make the movie about politics. Right. Well, the whole like Canto bite scene that everyone hates, I think they mm-hmm. almost hate it because they're not allowing themselves to like relish in this like deeply political comment. I just also um, can't believe that people didn't like that. I'm so confused. Like I, I just I don't, I don't it, know what, what people I, want, I guess. If like this wasn't good, then I don't know what you're looking for. You know what I mean? Like I have yeah. a problem with that. Um, yeah, I think what drove people like to not liking it is that it was too earth like. Which, like, you're missing the fucking point if you don't see, like, that is, like, completely tied to the themes of the movie. Like, um, once again, we're brought to our own type of reality. Um, and so it, it brings us into, like, okay, we need to think... I mean, it's not, like, super, super political, and it's, like, um, like it's timeliness. You know, it's not, like... I wouldn't say it's saying anything specific to, like, the Trumpian yeah, moment. Yeah, definitely Would not. you say? Yeah, I don't But so. it's saying something about, like... Um, like progressive politics as like a perspective or like as a stance that like a timeless stance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that scene by making it earth-like and then also being like a way of minimizing this conflict, like, Oh, they sell to both sides. Like the real people in charge are these like earth-like casino to what, like it, it may be a little too on the nose, but it, the fact that it was even in the movie at all was already striking enough. Yeah. Um, and so the, the set design of it, the lavishness and like the general, like sardony that was like evoked <laughs> yeah. um i think really worked i i it's it, it works because it's thematically relevant um and it ties into this collectivism that's being sort of touted in the movie like the, it starts with uh poe being like a flyboy like this like crazy dude who in his mind makes a dope ass like objective happen um but he is in it's like 
he cannot see that like it wasn't worth the lives. Like the whole movie can't see it wasn't worth the lives until the end. And what's funny is I don't think a lot of people in the movie, while watching the movie, I think that experience is lost on people too. Like it just sounds like late. Like you don't you are more convinced by the spectacle that Poe goes through um, than like Leia's moralizations. Um, and at the end of the movie, those cerebral moralizations win out. It doesn't feel satisfying viscerally, but that's what's so amazing about that's the risk taking in this movie. I think is that like there's so much failure, and the lessons that we learn are like don't go rogue, don't be like <laughs> yeah for sure, don't be everything that the series has taught you to be like with like Luke jumping into the Death Star using the Force to blow it up or like you know like things like that where um, that going it alone is diminished that's a that's like a like there's the moralization that we like we should work as a collective which is again deeply soviet in that way um so and then there's things like intellectual cuts too like when uh like uh, ray is like you know what do you see and she's like flowers and it like goes to the flowers or like when luke's like you know the rebellion is just sprung again and then it shoots to poe like those are what like you know eisenstein would call the intellectual cut um, where the, the the symbols themselves have meaning because it is discontinuous. But when you go to like that kind of like deep, like um, obsession over just the edit, I think makes like elevates this movie. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't, whatever you want to talk about now, I just like, I think that it, that I don't know. Did you catch it? Like, was this the effect this movie had on you? Like I walked out not feeling enraptured in a way, but um, when I thought about it the next day, I thought it was this like just completely cohesive movie that was like surprising and uh, was easily the best Star Wars in my view. I think it beats. Em- well, it's it's difficult because of how you know you have to compare movies. And, and yeah, it's, it's just different. It's Empire is a product of its time, or <laughs> exactly yeah, right. So. Like I don't, but like to so it's in one ways it's not very comparable. But I think it was like it, it delivered in the ways I didn't expect. What do you think? Okay, so well for me, okay, yeah, Jake, uh, just I want to bring you to it back go. full circle. Um, I think it's really interesting that we're relating it to the disaster artists, and I didn't think of this until Johnny just read some of that stuff. But that's the great thing about cinema is we somehow feel more connected, and there's more humanization in a spectacle like Star Wars than in the disaster artists. We can't relate to this character at all even though it's like the most realistic shot that you can imagine but in star wars they're using the cgi you know they're they have uh they're in space and it's like no matter where you are in cinema you can still find that humanization and then you can also take it away from you know uh things like the disaster artist where you just feel completely disconnected by the celebrity that this guy is trying to gain um so that's just what i got from johnny's uh johnny's reading there um and yeah and i think that it's i think it's interesting to um i think something to like you know the interesting the most interesting thing to be said about the last jedi is i think what johnny is getting at which is specifically that there is um the last jedi is not just a star wars movie it is meant to be a like you know standalone piece in many ways when I say standalone, I don't mean narrative-wise. I understand that there are, like, overarching and, like, kind of weaving and braiding narratives. But what I mean to say is that there are comments being made in this movie that have nothing to do with the Star Wars universe in any way. 
right? And um, and I think that Jake hit on something, which is that like, you know, yeah, you watch something like The Disaster Artist that's supposed to be so realistic and you're supposed to be like, you know, connected to this character. But the truth of the matter is that this person, like Johnny said, is just an alien. So it's like impossible for you to actually feel like um, uh, any relation to those ideas. But, you know, sometimes I guess fiction is more real than reality. But so the thing that I wanted to point out specifically is that like the thing that stood out to me when I first watched the movie, when I came out of the movie, I was like really enamored. I was kind of one I like, you know, it didn't take me until the next day to really, really love, um, uh, really, really love the movie. And in particular, the thing that I kept talking about for the rest of the day and what I've been kind of like talking people's ear off about since is that like the, the form and function aspects. So like outside of the meta comments, there are kind of the more present themes of and how about this heavy-handed themes of balance right so like the force mm. is re, you know like redefined or defined as you know the balance between dark and light the balance itself right it's not that the force is like the light and that you can corrupt it it's that the force is that position between black and uh, black and white now the thing is that this obviously plays into things where, you know, it complicates all the ethics surrounding Star Wars by having uh, Kylo Ren almost, you know, you get you, you there's a moment where your expectations, you think that, oh, man, he's he, like this. Uh, I get what the storyline is now. He's going to um, join up with Ray and he's good now or something like that. Right. And um, and in that moment, you you know, you realize that his intentions are actually equally as corrupt. Right. And I guess like my brother told me, like, you know, I'm not one of those like, you know, extended universe canon people like I don't fucking know anything about that. But my brother told me yeah. that there's this whole there is actually like a very important piece of that um, external universe, which is that, you know, the uh, the worst enemy of a Sith is his master like the idea is that a sith must mm. always usurp their master that's the greatest right. yeah, achievement. They kill off their master yeah, yeah. Exactly. i'm not even sure that's eu that's just like the rule of two which gets set up in the prequels oh is it in the that's prequels yeah i mean it's not like not, that doesn't happen but like it's set up that like the rule of two is something that just gets set. I don't yeah, know I haven't I haven't seen the prequels in so long. Like, you know what I mean? I, I had forgotten. Maybe it is in the prequels, but I, I I hadn't realized that. My brother pointed it out to me. But the thing is that um, uh, when it comes to this like balance theme, it's not just that it is present in kind of individual, um, uh, uh, you know, microcosms that you can point out. Like, oh, this particular situation with Kylo Ren. It's also just the way that they play with chaos and serendipity, right? So there's like, how do I put? I'm, I'm trying to make this cohesive because it's kind of an overarching thing I noticed. So the way that the movie plays with your expectations, both mm -hmm. your understanding of your nostalgia for Star Wars movies in general and your expectations from a narrative perspective, whatever you think is coming next in the movie, both of those things are played up against each other in a way that you end up with this kind of balance, uh, you know, like to use the word. It's that there's, there's, you know, just so much nostalgia pinned directly up against so much breaking of expectations, right? 
Similarly, I get what you're saying. Similarly, yeah. like there are those situations where you know when um, Ray and Finn and I forget the um, uh, the Finn's compatriot in the movie, the Asian girl. I forget her. Yeah. I forget her name. Rose. Rose. That's it. Yeah, Rose. So Finn and Rose are on um, one of the star destroyers, or you know whatever big ship, okay, or Snoke's ship, or something like that. And uh-huh. they're going through that whole thing with Benicio del Toro. At that same time, Ray has gotten to the ship, unbeknownst to them, for a completely different reason, right? And for, and through like Ray is completely unaware of their plan, right? But throughout the rest of the movie, throughout that third act, they end up getting pushed back together through, you know, no action on their own part, right? Ray just shows up like in the Millennium scene. Falcon. Oh, yeah. You know what There's I that mean? scene where uh, it's uh, what it all happens at once, where Ray and uh, Kylo are, you know, trying to force grab this lightsaber. Yes. Which just to say, remember, she, like in the first movie, she beat him. Yep. And this movie, after he kills his master, then, it's like then, a harder yeah, battle. Yeah, it's a harder battle. Yeah. yeah. So there's that happening. There's also like uh, Finn and Rose are about to get like beheaded. Yeah. <laughs> They're about to get executed. And then um, uh, Holdo does the hyperspace. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Laura Dern. Or hyperspeed, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Uh, she does, and it all happens at the same time. The, the lightsaber explodes. The... Um, the ship goes through the big, the bigger ship, yeah. and then uh, Finn and Rose aren't executed. And so the thing, that is yeah. like that, and that scene too is just like beautiful. It, oh yeah, so it's amazing. Done. Yeah, I, I love that whole sequence. But what's crazy about that moment is that all three of those storylines that I mean, the movie is so dense from a narrative perspective. There is just so much going on in the movie from like the story. It's like story wise, but I never felt confused. Oh no, not at all. And that's actually what I think is Which so is skillful, and that's a, why it's yeah. like you know fits into that balance motif. All of these storylines, no matter like how unrelated and kind of weaving in and out of each other they may be, are actually quite balanced. And the movie is very easy to digest, right? So yeah. I think that that moment where you know uh, Kylo and Rey are fighting over the lightsaber, Finn and Rose are about to be executed, and Laura Dern goes into hyperspace, uh, hyperspeed to blow up the ship right um that moment is like in my opinion the like this great manifestation of the powers of chance and chaos and like uh, the reason i like the term serendipity is because serendipity is just a positive uh, a positive outlook on a chaotic occurrence right the force man yeah and that's that's actually related that's related to the point i've been making is that like that balance Mm -hmm. is like that's part of the force which if you're connecting that to like movie watching in general or cinema like those kinds of like what you're referring to as serendipity Mm -hmm. i'd refer you know it's like that like cinematic serendipity it's only something that can exist in that edit yeah absolutely yeah i understand and and in the script writing like all Mm -hmm. those things coming together just watching that is something that is that's cinema in a way because the edits all make it happen, right? Totally. And that's like, and that's what you're connecting is like part of the forces yeah, balance. Not only yeah. like the artistry of the experience, but like also the artistry of the editing, the writing. Yeah, all, all the background stuff going on. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's totally movie making. Like you know, you're watching a movie when all these things happen, but like the but you're drawn to it. Um, and that's and, 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 and yeah, reflect and that's on your own. 
connection. And that's to... all the manifestation of that of that balance aspect that we keep going back to, right? So that what I mm-hmm. what I found crazy about the movie was that um, very consistent form and function theme that goes on where the movie itself is built around the theme of the force as balance, right? Not just or just yeah. like I think. I think there's more too. Like I, I get made fun of. The, well, it's actually just funny, but um, because like you know the force is like it's like our connection to things, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been like focusing a lot about like our cinematic connections and like because the meta cinema of it to me is like just mind blowing. Um, but there's I mean I I think there's a lot like I think this is the most sexual Star Wars. Um, I it, I think it was kind of erotic in a way like when they're they're like. So the things that I know first, it's like um, there's that whole scene where like uh, I don't know who they're talking. Oh, the codebreaker. They're talking about the codebreaker, and Maz is like, "Oh yeah, he can do anything." And then there's this like knowing look between the other characters. <laughs> like, yeah. what is one of the times that Ray uh, f- sees Kylo through like the Force projection is like with his shirt off, and he refuses to put his shirt. Off. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. I don't, yeah, I don't. I don't think that's just a joke. I think that's like inviting you into this like eroticism because like the the most erotic moment in the movie to me. Is when they touch hands. Oh yeah. In the in the in the hut, and then Luke pops in, and then you both see him there, and it cuts this like discontinuity motif. Yeah. Um, and it feels like you're walking in on like this like taboo or like it's just some, like some a, like, like secret like, intimate moment. Like yeah, yeah it's yeah. infid it's like infidelity. Like you're in this like sex. You're just like it's this like hot moment of infidelity. Yeah. That happens when Luke, and then it turns into she like rages against Luke. So there, there's like all this energy, and then what I think is kind of the funniest is after they like, they uh, after they, uh, Kylo kills Snoke and they fight all the guards. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're both going, like they they basically like are trying to negotiate their own feelings with each other, um, and there's an incompatibility, and then they like try to they basically what I think is just they force fuck where they try and like <laughs> both get they try and both get the lightsaber. Yeah. And then, and then at that moment that we're talking game. about where there's this huge yeah, explosion, breaks it breaks up and they fall asleep. And when Kylo wakes up, she has ditched him. She hit and quit him. Like it was like she <laughs> dined and dashed. Like in this, like, and like he is like hurt by it. You can see that he's just like, why isn't she here? Oh like, my God. He's like, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> it's true, though. So, I, think you're, like, I think you're onto something real there. Yeah. You know, it, it might, you know, it's it was, hard for me to And think. it's Freudian with, like, her daddy issues. Like, he's like, your parents were nobody, you know, and she's like, you were looking for a father a daddy. Luke. Yeah, you're, you're looking, looking for, for a daddy, daddy and Han. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let There's me so be many your daddy. daddy issues, yeah, man. Yeah, There's so many daddy <laughs> yeah. Let me get that Kylo daddy. And so, <laughs> Kylo daddy. And so, I don't exactly know why, like, I think there was this, like, I think he just wanted to have like a sexy. Mo- I think he wanted to make it like not just. It, it feels more real to me. Like I was like, it was arousing to me. Like I, I like I felt like connected to. Like I was moved in the way that like. And the only time in another blockbuster I can think of was when in like the second Pirates of the Caribbean. When, uh, <laughs> What's her face kisses Johnny Depp. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, Do you remember uh, that? Wait, you mean where uh, Kira Knightley kisses Johnny Depp? 
Yeah, she kisses Johnny Depp. To me, I remember being in the movies like that was fucking hot. <laughs> I was not, a- and like they don't explain it. Like they don't like it's obviously just some. You learn it's a ploy in the third movie, but like it, it, you like you feel that you wanted them to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do it, and it was just like, oh my god, like that was sexy what? as fuck. Yeah, it, yeah, and also I think you'd use the but the right word is taboo. Do you know what I mean? Taboo, I think you were yeah, on the taboo. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was right wrong. Track with that, it was wrong, and like um. I think this movie was a little more like, like delicate. It was more intimate and delicate. It felt like I was watching when they touched hands, like um, in the mood for love, one car Y. Like I was just like, <laughs> oh my god, that's like, all the moments are happening, in subtextually, um, and so I just think that was probably a nod to like the power of you know n- not being super like gratuitous. Mm-hmm. And um, just, like, how intimacy itself – like, Ryan Johnson said something like, I wanted to use just cinematic language to um, convey this intimacy. And that followed all the way to the final cut. And I think that's pretty amazing that, like, you can – I think, like – I mean, I have a whole spiel about sexuality, but, like, if you can – and cinema. But if you can, like – if you get that sexual energy from something that's so ungratuitous – that's like an achievement, I think, and I felt it. I know, maybe not. I don't think anyone. Really oh no, else really no, no! Felt no. It. I noticed. I noticed the obviously there was like you know, se- like there was an underlying sexual tension, and there was a particularly like you know when they touch hands that is particularly intimate, and it does feel kind of like secretive. It's like being walked in on by your parents. Luke comes in, you know what I mean. Um, and then she fights Luke, and he's yeah. like, "Well, it was you. You were the problem. You were the problem." And then they fight, mm-hmm. and it's it just felt like you know, like uh, walking in on you know your wife with some fucking evil dude, <laughs> yeah. and then like the wife's got to <laughs> fight like, you because it, clearly it's your fault. <laughs> clearly it's your. I was actually listening to this like NPR episode about infidelity, and like the psychologist that was being interviewed was like, um, "Yeah, what it is is if as long as you're not coercive, it's the person who doesn't want something to happen that has all the power." Like if like you want to like feel like alive and you want to have more sex or something, the power is all in the person like in your partner. And if he denies you or she denies you, like you've just been power played. Oh, okay. um, I like I I, re- I listened to that after watching the movie, but I can see how like that was like Luke had all this power. Like she was like that was her daddy. <laughs> like when she was like, when, and like that was like the infidelity. The infidelity was to like the light side. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like it wasn't to like she's fucking Luke or something. But, like, <laughs> it infidelity actually comes from uh, the first uses of infidelity actually come from like um, losing your faith like your religious faith. Mm. And so I think the tying in between like her losing her religious faith and this like clear sexual tension, like even Mark Hamill, like said there was sexual tension <laughs> that was being developed. Like and Mark Hamill's like a really nice person. Like Mark Hamill wouldn't say there was sexual <laughs> tension unless there really was. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah. And, and he was like, oh shit, I shouldn't have said He's that. He's like a That's reliable like, narrator. Like, the... You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It, that, it, I, it makes me think of the scene like in the disaster artist where he's trying to make that sex scene <laughs> and it just like is completely failing <laughs> it's like it's like interesting how it can feel so much more intimate with like just people like touching hands in like a hut as opposed to like this dude with his ass out just like trying to like <laughs> scene fuck this girl oh my god that's a good connection yeah. oh my god. I think um just in terms of, we probably keep talking about this over and over again, but I know Jake has to leave soon, and um, I really kind of wanted to get a financial topic in while he's in, so um, I think we're going to transition here. That was a very 
<laughs> elaborate segue. That wasn't smooth. It's not what we call a smooth segue in the industry. We're, yeah, we'll, we'll, in the we'll fucking in industry. Somewhere. Look at Johnny. He's in the industry. Like, I, I'm in the podcasting industry. Listen, I'm, I'm, I am narrowly respected. <laughs> I make the, the no bucks. So. Yeah, exactly. I'm respected by uh, a thin minority. <laughs> it's so thin. You can't even see it, that line. Mm. <laughs> oh, God. So um, I think I want to go into um, – I know when, before when it was relevant, we were going to talk about uh, the Finn plea deal. Finn. And, like, I had a whole market spiel. But I think we're just going to, like, do whatever we want. So I think we should just talk about ethical finance. Do you, uh, Does everyone feel good about yeah, that? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So – um, Jake kind of came up with this topic. He was like, yeah, I, th- I think it might be fun to talk about are there ethical ways of investing? Because, you know, I think usually when you're talking about investing, right, like if you think ethically, it's like, okay, like I'm going to not put my money in like, I don't know, if you're religious, like I'm not going to put it in like, you know, a tobacco company or uh, like a like a weed stock or something, right? Like that might be your ethical stance. Um, and like, you're not going to just like invest your money and hope that company grows. I think what we're more interested in is like swing trading ethically. Right. right. Like, <laughs> like when you're, you're not like thinking like when Jake trades, right? Like he's got like market view up or is it market Smith trading view? Um, he, he's just looking at like indicators and the technicals. Like it right. really doesn't even matter what, you know, like right now we hate Bitcoin. Like we hate it, <laughs> but Jake, like the funniest, that's the funniest thing that's gone on ever. Dude. But Jake, so talk, about riot, talk about Riot, talk about Riot, like how you feel, right? It's something crazy. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's not even like, um, it's becoming not even a matter of like Bitcoin anymore. It's such a craze. Like, you know, obviously everybody, futures uh, are now up and yeah, everybody, uh, um, relates it to the dot-com bubble and it's there are a lot of things that are very similar but at this point um, it's such a craze that companies are even coming up with whatever they can completely turning over their entire uh, business method like there there's biotech companies that have failed you know you look at their stock over the past four years they used to have you know riots a great example um, it used to be like $8,000 a stock, you know, now it's trading at something like $3 before Bitcoin. Uh-huh. And once they saw like Overstock, Overstock, um, they decided to do some blockchain stuff because they were failing. Uh, <laughs> they their just stock, completely changed their They whole just company. decided to announce this, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean anything. They have no idea what they're talking about. Like, exactly. I mean, most of these companies don't. Like at least when they start talking, oh, we're going to get involved in blockchain. Oh, okay, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. And, it's, about? and so it's causing these companies like um, – to literally go up, uh, I think riots up six hundred percent in the past like month, and what? that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. You know, your market cap doesn't uh, go up six hundred times the value. And we're talking, we're not when this happens. And that's the thing about indicators. You can look at indicators. You know, you can learn what they're about. But when you're looking at them, you don't realize that we're talking hundreds and billions of dollars going into these companies that yeah. potentially could mean absolutely nothing. And I think that's the exact <laughs> yeah. definition of a bubble. Yeah. I don't know what's more of a bubble than that. And I don't I don't know, like, for that, like, if you have a perception that something is a bubble, like, 
is it ethical to like ever put money into it just because of like the like is it are you going to take the stance that okay like people like there's the information out there like investing is a risk you know so it's all fair game i'm gonna like make my money how i can or do you say like this is going to cause like devastation at financial devastation to a lot of people and i don't want to even touch it um that's a very different question than like investing in an oil company because you think they're polluting the planet this is like specifically in the realm it's all basically located in finance especially because cryptocurrency is basically like a financial commodity at this point right like Mm -hmm. it only exists as like a weird financial instrument it's not a currency it's just like (laughs) it's like weird commodity so like it's to me it's i think that i don't know what you guys think about that but um i don't know if you know we should impose other limits on ourselves when we trade especially in something like this that's just like completely isolated in its financialness do you know what i mean so i think that there's something to be said for the fact that um like when you're trading personally for example so like um uh you know how about this even if you have a decent amount of wealth you don't have nearly as much wealth as is controlled by even like the smaller the hedge funds. Yeah, we call them the mean? big boys around yeah, the, the big, office. The big boys yeah. <laughs> around the water cooler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, the, as the industry <laughs> would say, Johnny's in many industries. He's right, the greatest yeah. of all. He's in the best industries. You know. <laughs> but so, right, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> you get it. Oh, you get it. But um, but so the thing is that like. Uh, when you go and you make decisions about whether to uh, participate in some clearly overinflated bubble that you know because you're an intelligent investor is going to eventually collapse, right? Um, for you to go participate in that as kind of like a like with a smaller amount of capital, I don't think that there's anything like that wrong about that because uh, when I, or, you know I don't think there's a lot of problematic ethics with somebody using the like relatively small amount of capital that um uh that you yourself have and using it in the market in some creative way right can you express why you think scale is important like because i think that because here's the thing if you have the capital to be able to bet on something and also short it in the long run and be able to still come out on top for example like basically if what you're doing it, it like okay I'd actually like to take that question again. What I mean to say is that when you have, when the big boys, <laughs> go, yeah, when the big boys go out and they, uh, and they start uh, trading really high volume on something that's particularly hot, right? Whether it be some like new index, whether it be some new um, uh, instrument, you know, like a particular tranche of debt or something like that. Where you see the big boys kind of direct their capital that direction they build those bubbles in the first place, right? Totally. Like in many ways, what happens is that you see a whole lot of money get diverted to um, these kind of hot and fashionable um, uh, uh, outlets and systems, right? You know, varying different instruments and, uh, and uh, you know, ways you can buy in, into financial equity. But so when you see that money divert from the big guys, that's exactly what draws in tons of smaller investors right because the thing is like you know um you'll never beat the market on information every time you've gotten information from like market watch or something like that the market has already reflected that change right right? because because the financial institutions knew that shit before you did right totally 
Um, yeah, and, in- they, and not that they're doing something illegal, like not that they're like insider trade. I'm just saying like people have coffee and go to lunch together. You know what I mean? And they talk. <laughs> You're like, I, I, they I don't know. How do you, how do you prevent of- that shit? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like it's, and they yeah. talk about how they're the big boys around the water cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The they, they talk about yeah. their and own big boy, the other guy's big boy. They rub big boys together, put the heads of them together. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. We're not talking about Star Wars here. Yeah. So it's and, so, and also another thing that makes it very difficult to decide if ethics are even possible, if it's even a topic of conversation, this is a great example. So... Um, uh, Andrew left. He's a he's a big boy from uh, Citron Research. <laughs> I, I um, really he, like this big boy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's it's a thing now. It's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> good. Um, so he is actually challenging the CEO of yeah. this company, Riot, to a debate, a live debate, because <laughs> he thinks that they're making such false claims about Bitcoin and their blockchain system, and it's totally unfounded that their uh, that their company is up six hundred percent. And the problem with that is, okay, yeah, it looks like he's an ethical person, right? But he could have a short position on the other end of things to where it's beneficial to him it's to absolutely find I mean, out like, that this guy's lying. He certainly does, you know what I mean? And, right. and he does. I think I think there's another article saying that he does have a short <laughs> so position. So I also think that there, so I don't think that there's I don't think that this is actually something I was going to I was gonna bring up a moment ago and you totally hit it on the head. I think that there's I think that it is much more unethical to participate in the bubble than bet against it. Right. So Mm -hmm. taking a, like, you know, so they came out with Bitcoin futures. Like, can you take a short position on Bitcoin yet? Um, you, what you can do is you can trade. Um, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you can short sell futures, but what I know you can do is you can make options on futures. So you can have a put, you can sell puts or you can sell uh, calls, you can basically oh, so you can sell puts same thing. on yeah, yeah, you can on, sell puts on the future. But the thing is that a future is generally de- like construct. Like it's funny that you, well, uh, we're using yeah. the term future. That's exactly the that's when you Johnny said a minute ago. It's more like a f- financial commodity than a currency. Like well, yeah, uh, ma- that, maybe yeah, maybe like contract. Well, but like may- maybe straighten me out. But I don't think that like when you're trading in forex markets, I don't think that you call a future interest contract in a particular currency of futures contract. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think you do either. That's why it's like I was right? actually telling I, that, Jake that's that's that was that was, was the so big bizarre, joke about right? this is that like because well, like yeah, you, buy, Chicago... you buy futures on corn, Chicago Board of Trade. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, Chicago Board of Trade. CMOE or whatever. yeah, it's basically though like yeah, the fact that it's being traded in a Chicago the Chicago's future market like means that it's being treated as a commodity. It's being treated like, like gold more than it is yeah. being traded like no, exactly. stock or like yen. Yeah. You so it's like I mean? already the fact that like there's already this admission that it's not a currency, that it's that, a That's actually a really funny way to and think And the way it works, just to like to clear it out for people, what, what Mark's saying is that like, okay, you could short sell the bubble, right? And what one way you could do that with Bitcoin is um, I guess you could just actually short the Bitcoin stock, I guess, but another way you could do it, like more. Leverage. Are there Bitcoin yeah. indexes? There's there's, yeah. uh, there's one ETF. Um, you know they're gonna make more, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, GP GBTC. Um, it's like a holdings for Bitcoin, and it's literally trading at a sixty percent 
over premium, like over their assets right now. That's ridiculous. 60%. So like, that's fucking ridiculous, dude. So you that, can, that's I fucking control, insane. Man. That's it's dude. All I want to do is take a super, <laughs> super long short position on this shit right now. Like people are like, should I mortgage my house to get, buy Bitcoin? No, mortgage your house and bet against that shit. Yeah, this know, shit is but... unsustainable. What are you talking about? But the problem, here's the problem. Premium. Here's <laughs> the problem. Ridiculous. The bubble is difficult to assess because Bitcoin, my, you know, like I think the basic macroeconomics of Bitcoin is that once it hits its cap, um, 21 million Bitcoins or whatever, then like it will deflate. It has to. Um, because yeah. you can't it, you can't do any like um, oh god what is it called whatever you can't introduce any money basically into it again so that's why it's, it can't be a currency there's a finite amount but that's not going to happen I think till 2040 okay um, is where, where it maxes you're saying yeah that's where it'll hit its max which like you know so you can't really wait for the bubble to hit when it maxes out well, Which no, 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 but, they, so will, this but is also still... kind of my point. But, but hold on, here's my point. Like, there is like kind of this finite date, okay? That you're saying like 2040 is when Bitcoin can't be worth anymore, right? Yeah, it's either 2040 but, or 2140. It's something okay. ridiculous. Like, it's, it's something in insane. The I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. it's ridiculous. But the thing is, during that time period, what's going to happen at some point is that there is like, I mean, this is what happens with any major speculative um, uh, buying trend. Right. What ends up happening is you're going to have just a couple of really big uh, uh, like capital participants. Right. So people who own a lot of Bitcoin are going to dump them at some point for reasons that may not be related to the health of Bitcoin itself. Right. They just like one big investor may need cash or something like that. Seriously. And what's going to happen is you're going to kind of see dominoes fall and the market's going to overreact. Right. And so, like, whether or not Bitcoin yeah, will recalibrate yeah. itself to being worth, you know, like $5,000 a Bitcoin or something like that, right? Like, if it were to, which is ridiculous to talk about. It was worth $600 last year. You know what I mean? And right. so, like, my point is that there's no way that – I don't think it's even sustainable through that, like, cap on value that you're talking about, right? No, it's going yeah. to be I was just, just saying like, macroeconomically, that's – Someone's going to no, get skittish and there's going to be like a bunch of shit is going to fall. So like, and, and to bring it back to the question about ethics, I think that shorting Bitcoin is more ethical than buying Bitcoin right now and trying to press people to buy more Bitcoin so that your Bitcoin is worth more. Yeah. It's just that like, I mean, and I guess like in the mechanism of shorting, like you're still buying it in a way, right? Like you're getting like the bank to buy it. For, isn't that how like who who like right. yeah so like at some level you are still well that's if it's on I mean that's if it's on margin well all shorts like are the bank on well no 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 not all shorts are on margin you can buy non-margin mm-hmm. shorts short position doesn't how? have to be margined how? no you, you go no to. you actually buy the contract outright maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding no, you, something I mean no shorts margin aren't is contracts. through the bank yep. you have They're to yeah, someone has to hold it and then they like pay you have to pay interest like that's how shorts work. It always is through. Like, no, I understand that. I understand plan- paying Unless you're a big boy, I don't know what your position. interest rate is. If you're a big boy, I don't know what that is. But for like, what, like if you, sh- when you shorted stuff, Jake, like what, what interest did you pay? Um, I, it's negligible just because yeah. of the amount of time I held on to the, uh, to held on to it was like a day or two. Oh, uh, right. you were just, you yeah, were I mean, the just the way I've been, just the way I've been taught is to not hold on to shorts for very long. Um, 
but that's more of a conservative way of going about things. You know, you can you can definitely hold on to it longer. But it was it was negligible for me just since I didn't have it for very long. So you didn't have to pay premiums like over a longer period of time. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it was negligible, and uh, you're still borrowing from the bank. No, but but that's actually my that's actually exactly my point. I don't think that a general like put position options contract that's not short has to have that's different. No, if you buy it, it's taking a short position. Am, am, Am I misusing the term short? Because like yeah. I'm just, I'm well, just saying a short that, like, a short reverse if you're like short or long on a stock, which means like directly interacting it when you're doing options. Oh my god! Yeah, you, you know what's so puts. funny? You know what's you know what's so funny? I, I that's hysterical. I, I I'm just I wasn't thinking straight. Forgive me for everything. It, dude, I just it's said. so complicated. We're just we're just trying to make like, sense of it. No, I just that's like, what the big boys you know, want, man. They want. This is exactly what they want, man. I wanted to say one other thing that was like in a completely different way. Also, okay, so um. I'm going to link these two. Bitcoin, the mining process is super bad for the environment. It costs so much energy. Like China is polluting the fuck out. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, totally. And so um, when I started actually looking at ethical investing, when I was doing research, what came up was actually like trading um, ethical stocks. Uh, So they're called environmental, social, and governance standards. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you look at it, they like the evidence, it shows it outperforms their benchmark easily. So like if you're going to like, you know, uh, invest in green technologies. Imagine like this: like if you're doing green technologies, you're not adding pollution, right? So you and on the long term, your environmental risks are mitigated, which seems sort of crazy. But like if you can make sure that storms aren't happening at like a increased rate, your investment is safer. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so a lot of people like they think about like it's you're trading the short term for the long term because um, ethical like environmental, social, and governance like good governance stocks are just going to over time be better because they mitigate lots of like long-term like they, they have longer term site. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So like companies that cut emissions perform better environmental tech stocks outperform their benchmark. Like um, ETFs that are ESG have hit all time inflow record of like 6 billion. Like <laughs> these things are like performing really well. Um, but a the argument against like their outperformance is that um, they're being held up by like the government, right? Like, uh, like you know, you're being like supported and propped. Yeah, yeah, you're not gonna, yeah, you're gonna get better treatment if you're like trying to put in windmills than like you know fracking rigs or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, t- so they're saying, oh, it's propped up, that's why they outperform. But I think that's sort of the role of government. Yeah, especially I was about in investing, to say that's like to that's like a yeah the the well-being of the populace you know it's well like i mean well good, like uh, investing is definitely not to promote the well-being of the populace uh, i mean I, i'm just no but the cynical, government but like the government can like that could be that's a role of government is to like basically i mean in my mind it's to pick winners that are that we all think are going to be better in the long run for the greater amount of people right like mm-hmm. it is i think it is i mean like you know if you're conservative you're definitely going to disagree with me but i think you know it like we should be picking winners based on our environmental consciousness and like you know our ethical realities well yeah and also i guess also just to add a little bit more of a devil's advocate here um when with bitcoin you know there's a lot of people saying that it's drawing people to investing into the stock market and this does help the economy you know this does give people jobs this does create an inflow of money that is going to be felt and seen by average americans i think eventually i mean obviously we always talk about 
the big boys and how they're the only ones who profit. And probably when this thing blows up, it's going to be, you know, people who are just average Americans left holding everything again, as usual. But at the same time, like, if you're investing in Bitcoin, like, isn't this, like, the way capitalism is supposed to go? Like, it's going to cut out the fucking people who thought this was a good idea. Yeah, I guess we just, I have problems with capitalism. Yeah, I was, of course. Yeah, but, but like, I mean, just to say, like, um, just because stocks are, like, just because the Dow Jones and, you know, the S&P are up. Fuck the Dow Jones. Does not, no, but does not, I'm saying that just because the stock market is up does not mean that it's going to, that your economy is actually in better shape or anything like that. I just, I I, I just think that that's like. and I'm not We're calling you out. I'm calling G- out the GDP idea. this year. Well, but the thing is that, like, an increase in GDP, if undistributed, doesn't actually mean anything for the sustainable health of the economy. Because, like, for example, if that GDP has actually been, um, you know, like centralized, you know, among like a small group of capital holders, right? Then what ends up happening is that you have less consumable income among the consuming class, right? Like the the idea is that, or I guess the point I'm trying to make is that like just because stocks are doing better actually does not translate. Like it's not just even like trickle down not working. I'm not saying that like, I'm not <laughs> even getting separate. a trickle down. The investor getting... class is different than like, you know, the... Regular people. person, well, but, isn't and, but it, also isn't it better it did, than the stock market performing performing poorly? Well, I don't think uh, so. I'm not saying that it's any better. That like, okay, yes, obviously the stock market doing better is better than the stock market doing bad. What I mean to say is that like to make kind of a statement that you know the stock market is doing well and that's better for us is kind mm. of skipping some steps because like okay. When stock goes up for Verizon, Verizon gets more money because they own and have held back a certain amount of Verizon stock, right? Like mm-hmm. when I sell stock at, at a value of $100, I only get that $100 even if the stock is worth $150 next week, right? The whole point is that the company makes money on their own stock by holding back stock and selling it and trading it at higher values when their stock prices go up. So the thing is to say that like, okay, so we have in- investors making money, like shareholders making money from a company by trading their stock. The stock pr- price goes up. The company doesn't actually get any more money for that stock price going up, but for what they sell from their reserves. That money then goes to that company. That company then, we have to start <laughs> questioning what their at- internal governance is. And the idea right. is, are they going to turn like... Are they going to take that money and turn it around and give it to workers or put it into R and D? Right. No, almost yeah. certainly they're going to pay it out to to uh, you know directors and shareholders in varying varying right. ways or like up yeah, officer I, a pay. You know. Yeah. No, and I I completely agree that like systematically I do not agree with the amount of wealth held. You know, obviously we can go into the big capitalism thing and yeah. one percenters <laughs> and shit like that. Um, I think just if we have to work in a system like this, then right now we're benefiting the best that we can, I think. And I think that you might be right about that. I think that there's something to be said for the fact that like um, there's a lot of it's all about, you know, so much of economics is about confidence. So I think that you could be saying something that's very true, which is kind of like 
this and not in a detrimental way i mean like the soft effect so instead of it being yeah that, like stock market the stock market is up which means that it's raining money on all the poor people no that's a, totally like, yeah what that's I, definitely what I, not what i mean exactly but i think that the stock market being up makes somebody more interested in buying that thing that they didn't buy last year because they didn't have money or something right. like that. Buying a new car or something right. like that. My portfolio yeah, I mean, is doing I hate all the right. System. I'll go buy a car. You know <laughs> I, what I, mean? I hate I it. it. I hate the system. Yeah, I get it. I hate, I hate the fucking system. And, <laughs> what, <laughs> and that's why I think I brought up the ethics of it because I'm the only way I know how to operate is – within this system like the only way i know how to go about working in this system is by being a part of it right now is what i found and just like robbing and, and slitting throats yeah exactly yeah so yeah, exactly. and so i want to find out is it possible to still to be ethical in this system you know when and what i wanted to bring up also is since everything's commodified in the stock market you know once it's been commodified it doesn't really have an identity anymore. It's like Marx says. You're basically making a Marxist critique while also <laughs> yeah. justifying yeah. You, your capitalism. You yeah, right. Yeah, you get it. You get it. I don't know what the fuck you're doing, but it's super exciting. I'm aroused. But I'm I haven't been aroused this it. much since Star Wars. I'm into it. But, okay, I think we're running a little late, so um, I think that was pretty good. I want to. I think maybe we should talk more about finance, like, regularly i think this is uh Dude, I'm working out. yeah i love your law perspective on it i love jp's like fucking little articles that he finds and just like goes <laughs> ham on dude like you should see some of this these notes over here i prepare <laughs> yeah johnny so, goes yeah, that deep was for this shit you guys I listen, love it, man. listeners you should appreciate it this man works for you you know what I mean? <laughs> all 12 of you listen <laughs> yeah right my labor i just like made this like facebook post that was like super genuine and earnest because i was like oh my god someone listen to this shit please <laughs> let me talk i try so hard oh but um okay so i think now i want to do um some recommendations yeah. i think we'll close it out because i think now we're just gonna like do like we're just gonna do an hour a week this like thing trying to do three podcasts oh a week god, is insanity we're just gonna talk hour. about what we want to talk about i think people understand like our perspective now on uh trying to make everything work together politics art philosophy i think we just talk now so but let's get into our recommendations mark what do you have anything yeah um so i'll say i'll say two things um uh, but i'll be brief uh so both of them are netflix shows the crown is so fucking good dude i really love that mm-hmm. show and the second season came out and it's just awesome like i don't exactly I, I think that it's like a little bit um less cohesive as a season Right, like the first season, it was her like becoming queen. So there was kind of this overarching narrative throughout the whole season that like you know glued it all together. Right, this one is a little bit more schizophrenic. You know what I mean? It like (laughs) (laughs) just just a little bit, a little bit schizophrenic. It's like OCD, but it's not taking its medicine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's what's going on. It's it's like it's kind of got ADD to a degree. It's just like. Um, it's not as cohesive as the first, but everything that I love about that show is still there. And it's so funny. I can't exactly say why I really like that show so much. 
I, you know, it's not that I'm particularly into royalty or into period pieces or even like, you know, I'm all like about this, you know, kind okay. of historical drama or something. It's just, I just think the show is really well done and the writing really always, you know, is spot on. It's not weak. It's not half-assed. They put effort into the show and it shows the, it's very good. So I'd recommend the new season of the crown and that okay, show. One second. Uh, this is pretty funny, but Jake has to leave. <laughs> has to so I just want—he says he doesn't really have any recommendations. Yeah, so I just my only to... recommendation would be uh, to read a novel by Samuel Beckett instead of a play. Yeah. I know I'm the finance guy apparently, but really I'm not. So uh, yeah, that's that's my thing. And uh, thanks, guys. All right, yeah, we'll say. All right, bye, Jake. It was bye, nice Jake. to reconnect Love with you. you. Love after you, Margarita. Years and years. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Love you too, buddy. Oh man. Okay, so um, the second thing I'd recommend is also on Netflix. It is that show, Dark. Uh, it is a German oh, right. show that I I guess, like, you know, the closest comparison is that it's, like, Stranger Things. You know, it's a sci-fi mystery about, like, disappearances and things like that. So it's obviously drawing a lot on, um, on the initial uh, narrative style of Stranger Things. But... It's definitely, you know, what makes Stranger Things so different than everything else is that it's just like, it's it's supposed to be this channeling of early Steven Spielberg work. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Like, that's like, you know, it's very much, that's its niche. It's like, that's why it's, you know, a kind of coming of age story. And there's like a lot of levity and kind of, the you know, all this, um, uh, I guess, less heavy subject matter. Dark is like Stranger Things for adults. It's it's like if it's you I know could be more into that. I, it's I like have a no sci-fi. To watch Stranger Things. See, that's two. so bizarre know. to me though. I really I see like I like Stranger Things a lot. Um, I know you know the first season was way better than the second, but like oh, was it? I, I don't even. Yeah, know. I, I like I, I mean just generally I think I think the first season is kind of magical. There's like I just remember not being able to stop watching it. I watched like five episodes in a row, right? Um, when I when I started the first season, but the thing is that um, Dark is much more adult. It's it is it's so much more like if there was a, you know, a sci-fi version of some macabre uh, uh, disappearance story, right? It's like it's like sci-fi True Detective, yeah, right. Um, and it really comes through the show. Like I'm only uh, I'm only halfway through it right now. But um, I've enjoyed every episode. Uh, I think it's I think it's really interesting. It also I know that Johnny knows this, but I'm a huge sucker for opening title sequences on television shows. <laughs> oh, it's just something yeah. that I really really love. It, like I, I don't know, a good title sequence um, uh, can like make or break a show for me sometimes. Um, and the thing is that the, the so opening so superficial. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm only here for the, for the thrills and the sex, you know. But so, the thing is that uh, the intro title to Dark is really fucking good, and the show all over is really great. So I would recommend the new season of Crown and the first season of Dark, both on Netflix. Man, that was so brief, dude. That was super brief. <laughs> Sorry. No, I love it though. Sorry, always, I'm always... excited. I like stuff. You I can like. like... Okay, so I'm gonna go a different route. It's still like something you watch, but um, I'm gonna recommend the filmography of August Ames. Um, 
She's a she was twenty three. She's a porn star. She's made something like two hundred seventy films, and then she committed suicide last week. Um, we don't talk about pornography enough to like just put in perspective like how I think it's the most important or it's the most like um, pervasive ubiquitous form of cinema. Like just looking at Pornhub stat like stats from two thousand sixteen, five thousand two hundred forty six centuries of porn was watched in one year we're talking 23 23 billion visits to Pornhub with almost 1 trillion or almost 100 billion videos viewed which means that like 12.5 videos would have to have been viewed for every person on earth if you averaged it Um, (laughs) the amount of porn we consume I think completely trumps for a lot of people how much other forms of cinema that they consume Um, and so someone like August Ames I think it's she just has the the meta cinema of August Ames pornography oh is fascinating. Um, <laughs> I, this is someone who at the beginning her like pornographic style was like typified by this next door girl Canadian quality where she was always like okay yeah we'll have sex and like she never really like forced like she was never really like performative with her orgasms. She was just very like she it felt real but like she was like deified in this way already like her deification came immediately um mm. and so she like was elevated like she got nominated for a bunch of avn awards she was like a like legitimate porn star and if you look at her views across the internet they rival any pop star right like Jesus. she was like legitimately like a star but in this like taboo way where we don't like openly talk about it and it's kind of crazy to me her net worth was only like half a million dollars and like she is like one of the most viewed porn stars that's when she so was a lot, you know what I mean. So yeah, I guess it's. I would I recommend it's like hard to make pornogra- money off pornography when you're like an actress or an, an like or a porn actor. I think like, you make like a thousand dollars a scene or two thousand. Like if you're like in it, if you're like you know like that's actually like yourself. not like you're gonna, very much. Like that's not at all. I mean, you do make a lot of movies, but like you, it does like it's just not a lot. Of, and then you got to manage all your social media. Like there's just a lot. There's that, like yeah, there's you have a, to go yeah. to conventions where you're not getting paid. Yep, yep, like yep. and. So there's just a lot that you have to do as a porn. I run to recommend her the meta cinema of her pornography because in the beginning she was very natural. That was her thing. But then whatever happened, she she was a very depressed person. She started doing a lot of plastic surgery to her face, and she completely morphed her appeal and her style. And the movies that she was making started to be more constructed. And less like, you know, like going in the bathroom to have sex. And now it's like her final video is like she's a witch. And like it's just like completely constructed type of pornography um, where it's just like like it's so like satirical, right? That like her face almost became a satire of the person she once was. But like what makes it really real is that she was actually super depressed and then she killed herself. So like <laughs> yeah yeah if you watch not, it, it's not just, to laugh but to laugh like at the, at the, I know it's the, just, the irony I think yeah the you just have if you watch the whole thing if you like if you just like take snippets out of her filmography you're gonna see this transformation uh, you don't really see a lot like I mean like we're talking about the less Jedi less Jedi the transformation between like Luke as like we remember the original trilogy verse um, <laughs> you know like in the last Jedi like there is that kind of like moment where you're like watching age happen in real life like this is like the appeal of boyhood. But to watch it in a way that's not that like mirrors her actual mental state, and then she dies like but she is, kills herself is like, like is like really effective. 
Yeah, I think it's worth watching. And, like, I think we should, like, look at pornography in cinematic. Like, you don't have to jack off every time you look at porn. Like, it tells us something about the things that we want. Like, it tells us something about, like, this currency of sexual desire. I think, anyway, so I would just recommend it. Um, and it's it's sad. Like, it's depressing watching it. But Oh, my um, God. I think that's uh, where we're going to end it. Um, thanks for listening. And uh, I think we're probably, it won't be till next year, maybe, where we start podcasting. Yeah, it's going to be more so regular. We'll be back eventually. You know, there's just a lot happening. I'm moving. Jake is working like crazy hours. Like we're just going to get back on a regular schedule, but like it's, we just like podcasting. Yeah. It'll happen. We, we dig it. We, you know, we're not going anywhere. We're planning to be, we're not going, we love you. And uh, (laughs) all 12 of you, our moms, our brothers, you know, like, yeah, it's great. So anyway, um, I'm Johnny. That's Mark. Yep. And, uh, all right. See you later, boys. (laughs) Yeah, the big boys. Shout out to the big boys. Shout out to Ajit Pai. Ajit. (laughs) My boy, Pai.